Under-19s World Cup, Ireland in the Caribbean, plenty of women's cricket and more coming up on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Emerging Cricket Podcast where we dissect the news and events from cricket's new world. We've given Tim Cutler the night off. He's currently enjoying some BBL action up in Brisbane. Decided to give him the night off, but I am joined by the man better known by many as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm sweating heavily here in uh, hot New South Wales. i uh, got the fan pumping right next to me. Um, just had an ice cream. Um, but yeah, really, really been struggling today. All the dairy products aren't good for speaking. You might get a little bit muddled up there with your words and, and the dry mouth there. So uh, make sure you get the water on on board and, and you stay hydrated over there. Good advice, Bez. Uh, yeah, I've just looked at my thermometer here. It's uh, just gone under 30 degrees for the first time today. And we're recording this uh, at 20 to 10 in the evening. Uh, that only indicates how hot it's been. Uh, so it is the opening partnership of Beswick and Skinner for today uh, but there has been plenty of cricket going on and, and we've seen a lot of stuff on television actually which has been good to see with the under-19s World Cup of course a 16-team tournament it's been a mixed bag for the associates and some of the emerging full members we've seen Afghanistan go from strength to strength beating South Africa uh, they were semi-finalists uh, in the last tournament but they're only picking up where they left off it's been a little bit disappointing for Canada and Nigeria UAE's been a little bit more encouraging and Scotland well they haven't been great but I want to start with Japan uh, Nick and, and Japan has brought out a wealth of emotion from from people on social media we've seen a bit of a backlash as to their participation in the tournament which we've discussed at length before in terms of how they've qualified but I've got plenty to say about this topic and they were unfortunately brought undone by India losing by 10 wickets but from my point of view and I'm sure you'll pick up on this I want to first make the point that this is the perfect experience from Japan and this was what they needed to do to expose themselves to the next level of international play because yes there might be work to do but without playing some of the top teams and exposing yourself to the the next level of the game it's very hard to improve yeah, well, one of the things that, you know, talking to the Japan staff in Brisbane a few weeks ago as they were prepping for this tournament, you know, what they were saying was part of the plan for them was to um, break the team down and then build them back up. And part of that was visiting uh, Australia and playing some Brisbane sides and, and trying to get a bit of a sense of, of what they might face in the World Cup. But yeah, as you say, I mean, this is a team that qualified essentially two years early because they were planning to qualify for the next Under-19s World Cup. And, and through the, um, well, the, the unfortunate circumstances at the qualifier, PNG uh, had to forfeit their last game. And so Japan almost accidentally, although I'm sure they would have backed themselves to, to win their, that last match, but you know, sort of accidentally qualified ahead of, of schedule. So they're, they're very raw. They're very young. Most of these guys are going to be coming back through the qualifying in a couple of years' time. So you know, that's one part of it. But the other one is, look at the quality of the players that they're playing against. Yeah, they got bowled out for 40, but Ravi Bishnoi, the guy has a $400,000 IPL contract, which is quite a lot more than the Japan Cricket Association gets in a year so just looking at the you know the disparity in the resources available to both teams is, is pretty telling I think in terms of the on-field performance yeah you, they were thoroughly outplayed but this is just the first step and Japan you know you look at them 20 years ago in rugby they were also rubbish and what happened last year they hosted a world cup and they they did very well at it so I think looking at it now and thinking oh well they're terrible and they shouldn't be there is, is very uh, short-sighted and really it's not fair on the players who uh, it's not their fault that they haven't been exposed to this level quality before 
Yeah, it's a good point. And to think that in two years' time, just about all of these guys will be eligible to play for Japan again, it's a great sign. And yeah, in a way, they were probably earmarking the World Cup to come next as, as their one to shine. But yeah, you bring it up there. And, and just looking at it from a technical standpoint, to be honest, I thought technically a lot of the Japanese players showed a lot of promise. And I know they were bowled out for 41. And call me crazy for saying this, but I actually don't think there needs to be a whole lot ironed out of their game to go to that to a, to a higher level. Um, and just looking at all the dismissals of, of the players, the top order were a little bit undone by just a little bit of extra pace. The opening attack for India were clearly 10, 15 Ks quicker than a lot of the players were used to. And it was just a case of just being late on things and being a little bit stuck on the crease. You look at a lot of the dismissals, Noguchi, Thurgate, Date, Sahu, were all, all guys that looked good technically. They were just a little bit late onto the ball, which just makes me think that, you know, they just need to play a little bit more against faster bowling, quicker bowling. And then a little bit later on, it was the spin of Bishnoi. And I have to say, at the under-19 level, I haven't seen many spinners bowl better than Bishnoi. If they can play Bishnoi, they'll be able to play anyone. As you said, he's already got a $400,000 IPL contract. And no one picked the wrong end. And to be honest, I don't blame them. You look at the analysis and the, and the slow motion replays of Bishnoi's bowling, and they all come out like leg spinners. Even with Rashid Khan, when you see him close up, from behind when he bowls it's much harder to face but from behind you can see him bowl that wrong and see it come over the hand Bishnoi somehow bowls this ball that looks like a leg break and somehow moves from off stump to leg stump I've never really seen it before and to be honest I don't blame any of the Japanese players for not for not picking the wrong end. but yeah I, I've got to say if they just sign out a couple of little things I actually think they can get to the next level but the important part is to get to that next level they need to expose themselves to more competitions like this so the problem doesn't really rest on them it rests on the cricketing powers and how they perceive this result to be. One more thing I do want to bring up before we discuss some of the other under-19 content was that I was thoroughly disappointed by the handling of Japan was by some of the media. A couple <laughs> yes. of videos were posted by a few media outlets. And, and one thing that truly hit home to me was that, yes, India control cricket and India control the finances in cricket but they now also control the discourse of cricket where because everything is so dominated by the big three India and this dominant flow of those teams you know their audience which is also primarily from the subcontinent are desperate for very much India centric content and the coverage that Japan got for this particular game was unsatisfactory in every respect there was little research done to talk about Japanese cricket. They said a lot of the players came from Indian and English backgrounds, which was ridiculously untrue. You know, we've spoken to a lot of these guys and and Nick, you made a good point before we came on air tonight. You know, you listen to Marcus Thurgate talk in press conferences and, and he speaks with a Japanese accent. There's only maybe one or two players who are sort of from expat communities and qualifying for Japan that way. A lot of them have Japanese heritage. Just because some of them don't necessarily have Japanese last names doesn't necessarily make them not Japanese. You know, there are are Japanese mothers who, you know, it, it's not a process of patriarchy here. Just because your dad's name is not typically Japanese, it doesn't make the player not Japanese. And you have to remember, like, the way the eligibility works with tournaments like this, these kids who are, most of them are under the age of 17, they had to have spent quite a bit of time growing up in Japan, developing their games in Japan. So the info that came through on that was poor. And, you know, you've got Peter Delapena there at Crick Info, who's 
probably the leading voice in associate cricket. We've we've got to put our hands up and acknowledge that. You've got a Ferrari in the garage of Peter Della Pena, <laughs> and you're out here driving a Fiat trying to control the social media. I don't understand. There's going to be a whole rant from me on this, probably, and you know, by the time you listen to this podcast, an article from me venting about it. But I just wanted to finish on that point, and I'm sure you've got a little bit extra to say here before we do look at some of the other emerging teams at the Under-19 World Cup, but it's not good enough, Nick. Well, it's it just shows the lack of basic research. You know, they said Japan's cricket team isn't ranked anywhere on the eight divisions of international cricket. Well, you know, the, the World Cricket they League They don't divi- exist anymore. Well, <laughs> exactly. The, the World Cricket League divisional structure ended almost a year ago, and it hasn't been eight divisions for three or more years now. So, obviously, someone has just not done their research, and it, it's disappointing when, you know, this is one of the very few opportunities that most people will, will get to see Japan cricket in, in the spotlight, and, you know, they just can't be bothered to get it right. It, it's it just shout across the office, you know, or go in the office group chat and ask PDP what's going on. Like, it's not that hard. Let's talk about some of the other teams here at the Under-19 World Cup. We'll start with Canada. I know that you've probably looked into Canada a little bit more than most. To you, they haven't been great. There's a couple of positives, but I want to say that unlike UAE and Nigeria, there isn't a lot of movement between the Under-19 and senior teams. I've noticed that Nigeria and UAE, there's quite a close bond and there's actually a few players who go across and play for both the under-19 team and the senior team. Uh, but Canada doesn't quite seem the case. Would that be a true statement, Nick? Yeah, it's it's a funny one. I don't really know what's going on. Uh, and uh, I spoke to Farouk Kamani, the, the coach, and asked him pretty much, you know, what's going on? Why haven't the guys been moving through? And, and he's, basically he said that it's something that they need to work on to bridge that gap because you, know, you look at someone like uh, a Faisal Jamkandi, who, who was the joint leading wicket-taker at the previous Under-19s World Cup, and he has not appeared in Canadian colours once since. Or, you know, the Tour to the Caribbean, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where Canada brought a development squad and they didn't bring any of the under-19s players and they left the under-19s players training indoors in the Canadian winter. It's it, it's a pretty strange situation and, and I don't really understand why none of these guys actually get picked in, in the senior team. And A couple of them have made it through but it's quite strange. But yeah, we're looking at their performances at, at this World Cup, it has been disappointing. Obviously playing teams like South Africa, you're going to struggle but I hoped they had would do a bit better against the UAE. Um, unfortunately the UAE... <laughs> Jonathan Figgy played a blinder and the Canadians just, well, they, they had a bit of a batting collapse and, and couldn't handle the UAE bowlers. But yeah, a couple of good innings. Mihir Patel up the top and uh, Ravi Sandhu as well, the other opener. Both of them quite solid. Akil Kumar, um, the number three bat, who's uh, a, a defensive bat and he can also bowl. He took four wickets against South Africa, so that was nice. But the guy I was keeping on, Rakib Shamsuddin, their left arm spinner, he just lacked some penetration and he hasn't picked up a wicket yet in, in two games and he's gone at, you know, over six and over which is not great. And he has a a stellar record in Canadian club cricket in Toronto, where he's from. So that just shows the gap in quality. And and the fact that the spinners are lacking penetration, and you compare it to someone like Afghanistan, you look at Ghaffari running through South Africa and the the absolute production line of spinners that that Afghanistan have, it just shows the the golf in quality. Yeah, Yeah, and guys like Ghaffari probably won't get a look in in the senior team because it's already filled with Zahir Khan and Mujib and, of course, 
Rashid Khan and Muhammad Nabi. And so the, there's a massive queue of, of high quality spin. And as I said, it shows the um, the gap that these teams need to close because Canada dominated in regional qualifying, but they're struggling here. I, I don't know how to bridge that gap. Uh, I, I guess just more matches. But of course, underage cricket costs money. And you, you see teams like Australia and India who have a lot of money. They run pretty extensive underage tournaments. Same with the West Indies. They've done quite a lot with the uh, West Indies A and West Indies under 19 sides. And it's showing, you know, they've got a really good side in this competition. So I guess the the takeaway for, from the associates is just the, the fact that they don't have that consistent, um, those matches, the game time under their belts, really. I do want to bring up Afghanistan at some point, as well as Nigeria and Scotland. But to talk about the UAE for a second there, and you talked about Jonathan Figgy, who already has experience in the senior UAE team. They've also got a few senior UAE players helping out um, from a coaching point of view as well. But to look at UAE, and they were emphatic in that eight-wicket win over Canada in particular. To be honest, there there should be a carrot dangled in front of a lot of these UAE players, and, and Figgy is an example of this, where with all the turmoil that's happened in the senior team, there's a real opportunity for a lot of these UAE players, both batting and bowling, to, to step up. Yeah, and we, we talked about it a bit um, in previous podcasts, and Tim obviously made the comparison to Hong Kong a, a few years back when they had some turmoil and, and brought in a lot of young guys who they really built the, the core of the team around. And obviously, <laughs> having a match-fixing scandal is never good. But the fact that they've you know cleared out quite a few allegedly corrupt players means that they were able to rebuild with a very close-knit team and, and a really good team culture. And you know Dougie Brown as coach is... Um, probably one of the better coaches in associate cricket at the moment in terms of the way he's well (laughs) dealt with a a, a very troubled time but also um, with the way that the team works for each other and and bringing in these young guys who because it's under 19s you know most of these guys have grown up in the UAE and you know they're playing for their country and by building this strong team culture around the national side I think they're going to really surprise a lot of people in terms of the Cricket World Cup League 2 and and where they might finish there because after all the chaos that was happening if you know couple of months ago we sort of thought they were dead and buried in the in the league too but the way they've turned it around is, is really impressive and bodes well for the future yeah well it is all about maintaining that that consistency across the board it is a very long tournament that cricket world cup league too so by the time the end of it comes around there's a very good chance that a lot of these under 19 players will be almost part of the furniture in that team uh to look at afghanistan and and it's still fascinating to me you know they defeated south africa quite emphatically and there were still pockets of the media that described afghanistan as minnows even though they were semi-finalists in the tournament before this one at under 19 level which is probably also shows a lack of research as well but uh and you talked about it before you've got gafari there as as their spin king and, and the conveyor belt continues uh it shows that you know that quite possibly a lot of these players might not get a chance to play too much cricket at senior level but there's also a chance that they'll be picked up as t20 franchise league players which is quite a success in itself um i do want to talk about nigeria and scotland two teams who haven't quite lived up to perhaps their expectations and and i think ours as well if we're being honest with ourselves you know, Nigeria are another example of having players in both the senior team who played in that T20 World Cup qualifier to then come back to the under-19 World Cup. They did lose to Australia by 10 wickets, and, and Australia could arguably be one of the favourites for this tournament. So there is definitely room to improve. But you'd probably have to say that they need a little bit more out of the likes of Okpe, Olaleye, and perhaps Mahami Taiwo in the bowling stocks, given their senior international experience, Nick. Yeah, guys like Taiwo especially, who were, you know, he was leading the charge for them in the qualifier. They played against Australia, who Australia have, you know, comparatively a colossally more 
resources for their cricket team. So it's not surprising on one level. But I want to talk about Tanvir Sanger, the Australian leg spinner. We saw how Bishnoi wrecked the Japan innings. Tanvir Sanger did a similar number on, on the Nigerians. And it just they just haven't seen this level of quality in terms of wrist spin. And it's it's hard to face for the best of batsmen. And honestly, I think I think Bishnoi is going to be bamboozling quite a few batsmen at the IPL this year. Quite a few top-level batsmen, let alone young guys from Japan who, who haven't faced this stuff before. So, uh, same with Tanvir Sanger and Nigeria. Finally, uh, Scotland. And Scotland, for me, they were comprehensively beaten by Bangladesh, which I, I think is a little bit concerning. But it just looks like a, a couple of the players who dominated at the qualifier level haven't quite brought that to the next level, which again suggests that you know there is a golfing class coming through junior ranks. And, and again, it's probably a similar chat to, to talking about bowling speed and, and mystery spin bowling. But you know, guys like Tom McIntosh, who looks so good in the qualifier, just haven't been able to kick up a gear. Do you think it's probably the same problem? Yeah, it's definitely partly the golfing class, although Bangladesh is a, a test-playing nation with millions of young guys who, who want to play cricket for their nation. Scotland, it's hard to compete with that in terms of numbers. I think, as you said, McIntosh was disappointing. I, I really thought he would do better. He, he looked really good against, among others, Ireland. He scored a century and they um, they knocked Ireland out, you know, the full member in, in their region. Why they haven't done as well as, as we hoped? Yeah, partly just the, the lack of practice and, and development. But also, as you say, you know, these teams are better and they have a much better structure in place. And as good as Scotland has been over the last couple of years, they're not there yet, but this is um, a learning experience for them. Polarising uh, results there for quite a few of those teams, and hopefully we just do see a little bit more improvement from a number of those. Let's move to the Caribbean, where Ireland have just finished their tour there. We did acknowledge that Ireland at the ICC T20 World Cup qualifier last year probably didn't play at their best, but were good enough to qualify. And I've got to say, in this T20 series, I think they showed a little bit more of their best cricket. They beat the West Indies in the first match. Rain, unfortunately, curtailed the second match, and they were well, they were really outplayed in the third match, but a one-all series result away from home is a great result in my view. A couple of players emerging. Gareth Delaney, for me, was a huge positive that came out of this tour. I thought he batted excellently. I thought Balburnie developed in terms of his leadership, and it looks like they've definitely got a plan for what will be a pretty big year for them, Nick. Yeah, Delaney's one of the guys who uh, really shone in the qualifiers. I think he's the kind of guy that they need to have in the middle order. Their sort of upper middle order can really increase the scoring rate. He's very dynamic hitter. Often in the past, Ireland's 2020 cricket has been a bit old-fashioned, a bit slow. So young guys coming through like Delaney and, and like Harry Tector. Balburnie as captain, is he's really, as you said, fitting into his role. Kevin O'Brien's renaissance continues uh, with a couple of very aggressive starts at the top. Obviously, Paul Sterling smashed it to all corners for his uh, 95 or 40-odd deliveries in the in the first game. So their batting lineups really shaping up nicely. The bowling, as we said, is a little bit of a concern, but um, you know, they're not fully at full strength there. <laughs> they still weren't able to get Evan Lewis out and he kept hurting them after a fantastic ODI series as well. But um, I, th- I think they're looking good. I-, I think they'll probably surprise a few people at the 2020 World Cup later on in the year. As with a lot of the teams that, that did qualify, I think that power play plan of Ireland's is, is probably their best form of attack, and it's go, go, go between O'Brien and Sterling. I think they put on 83 in one of those power plays, which was bananas batting. You know, those guys, when they both get going, they're, they're really good to watch. I think when Sterling goes hard, it's his best. It's only when he tries to sort of pull out and play the in-between role where he comes unstuck. He's got a very good eye, and he actually bowls pretty decent part-time spin as well. He can bowl both off-spin and leg spin, so he's actually quite valuable 
table in a team like Ireland. And, you know, Kevin O'Brien, yeah, the renaissance continues very well put by you. I think he's a huge part of their plan heading into the World Cup this year. You know, he's got 100 in all three formats of the game for Ireland. So he's nothing to underestimate. There are a couple of questions and Gary Wilson's still in the team, even though Balburnie's taken over the captaincy. The keeping seems to be maybe not an issue per se, but definitely something they need to think about. They've got Lorcan Tucker there as well, who can keep and probably bat a little bit better, whether or not they, they want to focus on the keeping side or the batting side. But Nick, you made a good point that there's Will Smale coming through at the under-19s level who might be able to do a job as well. So there are plenty of things to think about from that point of view. But I think for Ireland, it's been a, a positive tour, both with the one-day internationals and the T20s. They almost got a result there in the one-days as well. So hopefully uh, that sort of bodes well and they develop into a better team. Uh, a couple of other four members who are, well, developing or rebuilding. One in particular, Zimbabwe. The other, Sri Lanka. They're playing a, a test match in Harare, which is just concluding as we record. There's another test match to come, but it looks as if Sri Lanka have this one in the books in Harare. Angelo Matthews making his first test double hundred. But to look at it from an emerging point of view in Zimbabwe, of course, rebuilding. We've seen four debutants for Zimbabwe in this test. Kazuza, Brian, Mudzin, Ganyama, Ainsley and Lovu, who's played a little bit of uh, international cricket in the other formats, and Victor Nyauchi. It has been a learning curve for them. We've seen a concussion substitute with Kazuza going out, concussed, and Mudzin Ganyama actually coming in as the concussion substitute. So a little bit of history there. But for the Zimbabweans, it does look to be a turbulent time. The only players who seem to be getting a start are the likes of the experienced, you know, Irvine's, Taylor's, Sakanda Razas. The top order is a little bit of a problem. And Embuldenya, the spinner for Sri Lanka, he basically tore through them. It is a pretty much a full-strength Sri Lankan side, though, so that's encouraging perhaps for Zimbabwe. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of improvement that needs to be made there, Nick. I think they were encouraging in that first innings. You know, um, Masvare and Kazuza put on a really good opening partnership, and they they were solid. They blocked it out, and and they played a you know responsible Test match grinding innings. And I'm a sucker for good grinding Test match innings, so I, I loved it. But they, yeah, they did struggle a bit against Embledinia, but you know he's he's a good bowler. And and the same thing with Sri Lanka is it's funny they've they've kind of disappeared off the radar after the retirement of guys like you know Sangakara and and Jai Wardner and those kinds of names. But they have been struggling a lot. But this is almost the perfect series for them it's you know it's out of the limelight it allows them to kind of get on with the job and it's a similar level of opposition and it, it's good for Zimbabwe as well that they're getting this sort of exposure and I guess we, we talk about teams like Ireland and I think they've had how many test matches have been cancelled on them this year three now is it um so what's the difference between Ireland and Zimbabwe not a whole lot in terms of on-field performance I would argue but in terms of just getting that game time that's the difference and I think you know if you substituted Ireland for Zimbabwe the result wouldn't be too different <laughs> You know, not all the teams can play everyone and, and that's always going to be a problem but how do you get guys on the field to improve it's a recurring problem for these um, lower ranked full members and, and obviously associates yeah and the second test will also be held in Harare next week so look out for that Moving on, there was a women's T20 international triangular series held in Qatar between Kuwait, Oman and Qatar. China were also invited to the event. However, they withdrew at short notice and the new schedule was announced. Oman dominated in the round robin series and then were actually defeated by Kuwait in the final, losing by seven wickets. Priyada Murali making 35 or 40 delivery.
deliveries. Mariama Haider taking two for 16 off four overs. Some more international women's cricket, which is great to see. We, we've seen China pull out of this particular quadrangular come triangular series. But for the Middle East, you know, this is a part of the world where, uh, from a political standpoint, you know, and talking about gender inequality and things like that, we, we do see struggles. But to have women's international cricket here is good to see. And it looked to have been a pretty tight tussle between all three teams. All, all three teams managed at least one win. Yeah, Qatar got a really tight win, won by Thriller by one wicket over Kuwait, who were the eventual champions, which uh, should show that it, it, there wasn't a huge golf in class. And parody. <laughs> the parody cycle, you should be able to... Uh, when, are you, when are you getting a women's parody cycle up, Bez? Look, it's been on the agenda for quite a while, and I tell you what, there would probably be a bigger cycle between all the teams, because it does seem to be a little bit more equality in the women's game. It'll probably just be an issue, probably more so at the top level, with a couple of the full member teams really having a stranglehold of women's cricket. Australia's one of those and, and England but I'm, I'm sure we'd be able to try and conjure up something there yeah sounds good but um yeah so yeah looking at the top wicket takers and, and run scorers you got Shetty from Oman who took eight wickets taking wickets in each match and Priyata Murali from Kuwait topped the run charts interestingly enough she, she only had a high score of 35 which shows again it's a recurring theme really in, in women's cricket that it's it's a lot more bowler friendly and just to talk about the game generally that's one of the things I, I like about women's cricket is you know the men's game's a lot more sort of slam bang always trying to hit sixes and, and smash fours and that's fine but I as I said before I, I love I love a good nerdler and the women's game is a lot more bowler friendly and scoring runs is tougher so I, I actually that's the point of difference between them and as a product it, it makes it a bit more interesting to watch I'm really glad you bring that point up because I was talking about this with a few people at work talking about a comparison between the WBBL and and the BBL and I find a lot of people get lost in trying to compare the two sides and and trying to bring them together when I actually think you need to celebrate them in in their differences because I'm totally in agreement with you here. I think that being able to score 40 not out of 20 balls and only hitting one boundary is almost more skillful than scoring 40 off 20 balls by hitting four sixes one player who does it in the BBL and I talked about him on my Twitter and this is completely unrelated to emerging cricket so I'll keep it short is John O'Wells and a lot of the time he makes 50 off 35 balls and he only hits a handful of boundaries so it shows to me he's a good runner in between wickets and, and a good fielder as well who covers a lot of ground to move it back into an emerging spotlight it shows you just how good some of the Australian women's players are when they're making 140 in T20 internationals because I think at T20 international level for some of the associate member women's nations I think 110 and 120 is actually a score to be applauded because it shows you that there's been quite a lot of energy in the running between wickets and the team in the in the field have actually been made to work and you can exploit different gaps in the field so for me I, I, I'm in total agreement with you Nicholas I, I think that's a very good point another women's series going on is the Uganda Tanzania under 19 series and, and Nick you make a really good point here in our notes that it, it's good that this rivalry continues to fire between you know African rivals and you've got Kenya and Rwanda as well who compete in in several other tournaments like this in Africa. There's a little bit of a cloud hanging over the T20 World Cup for 2021 from the women's point of view when the new cycle comes in. So it's probably a good experience for a lot of these girls to start playing now and start building into that qualification. But it was a good series and, and Uganda ultimately won what was a pretty tight final. 
Yeah, it was an interesting series. Another pullout here, and I think this just speaks to the resources or, or lack thereof you know, available in, in women's associate cricket. Kenya were originally meant to come over and that didn't end up happening. So Uganda played a, a under-19 select team, basically a, just a, another development side to keep it as a tri-series. And Tanzania won a couple of games. And as you say, the Ugandan under-19 girls won in the final. Another low-scoring series with, um, as we said before, the, the bowlers dominated, but Proskovia, Alako and Esther Uloki for the Ugandans, the top run scorers and they only scored 89 in, in their five outings and again perhaps it's because it's a lot easier to to train bowling in the nets as opposed to, to batting in a match situation but yeah so the the bowling is often quite good in women's cricket but the batting sometimes struggles but yeah as you say we're not sure what's going on with the qualification for the 2021 uh, t20 women's world cup we've recently seen the um the schedule and the, the venues announced for and it, it's happening in new zealand but as for how the qualification works no one's really sure because last year we had the double qualifiers which served as qualifiers for both the upcoming uh, women's t20 world cup but also next women's 50 over World Cup. So potentially we'll, st- we'll just see a single qualifier or, or who knows what. So hopefully these teams are able to, to keep funding themselves to just keep playing, you know, as we were talking about before, just getting on the field and getting that match practice. It's crucial. I mean, it doesn't matter how many net sessions you have, especially with batting. It's just such a poor substitute for match experience out, out in the middle. I think it's a, it's a problem that's actually probably been an overriding theme of tonight's show because it's a lot of the time a case of emerging nations taking on full members who have a wealth of experience and, and probably a wealth of funding in comparison to and we just see the result of that on the field it would only take a very small shift by you know the cricketing powers to sort it and to make it a, a little bit more of a level playing field but you know we'll all believe that when we see it but one thing we are positive about and it's the participation of Thailand in the T20 Women's World Cup they've been playing a quadrangular series in India which also includes an Indian A an Indian B team and Bangladesh now, the encouraging result in all of this was Thailand's win over India A. Chantum at the top of the order was a key with the bat, and they actually won it with their batting, which is a little bit surprising because we know they're probably a little bit stronger in the bowling department. But it's a hugely encouraging result, and we know they've done some preparation here in Australia. They're playing back in India now, but they'll probably come out here very soon. But look, for Thailand, it can only be a good thing winning a game against a very strong India A. There were a couple of players there who had played senior cricket for the country in India. Yeah, and as you say, an encouraging result. And it just shows, I guess, that their qualification wasn't a fluke. And, you know, we saw them also just miss out on beating Bangladesh in this quad series. Bangladesh got over the line on in the last ball of the match, which was a, a great result. It, it was encouraging because in the qualifier, in the final, we, we saw Thailand. They were a little bit blown away by Bangladesh and perhaps just outclassed but the fact that they've come back here and, and shown that they can well at least get close and, and they could easily have won that game shows that they're you know they're not out of their depth at this level of cricket and that's really encouraging and I'm very excited to get along to their matches in Canberra um, you keen for a road trip Bez? Look, there's a new engine in my car, oh, yeah. so I'll happily uh, happily drive down. So we've, we've got a road trip on our hands, Nick, and if we can wrangle uh, a few of the other EC faithful here in Australia, I'm sure Nishad would be keen as well if we give him a buzz and, and maybe Cutler if he's uh, not jet-setting around. So, yeah, I'm very, very keen for that and uh, keen for a stop at Sutton's Forest Maccas, which is the rite of passage for anyone driving <laughs> from Sydney to Canberra. 
Another team on, well, a rolling tour around the world are, of course, the MCC. They just come from a tour of Nepal. And uh, first on their list of travel destinations in 2020 is Argentina. There's been a few results coming in from their tour. They've played against the Belgrano Athletic Club and the Argentina national team in 50 over matches. They won both of those quite comfortably by 72 runs and five wickets, respectively. There's four more games on that tour for the MCC, which actually concludes on the 26th. So it's a very tight, scheduled tour they've got there. But for the MCC, they also go to Denmark, Spain, Uganda, all in 2020. So quite busy, but the MCC tour always rolling along and uh, good to see them touring some of cricket's non-traditional outposts playing some uh, some cricket and, and raising the profile of the game in several of these countries. Well, you say non-traditional, but you know, cricket in Argentina has a very long history and sort of around in between the wars, especially, Argentina was a quite a competitive team and cricket had a pretty solid foothold. It's withered away somewhat since then. But, you know, Argentina, along with uh, the USA, who were a real powerhouse at one point, and, and, and of course Canada, they're some of the great what-ifs of international cricket and, you know, what if back in the day it hadn't been the Imperial Cricket Conference and, you you know, you didn't have to be part of the British Empire to join? And, you know, what if cricket had taken a more uh, enlightened approach to new teams, you know, 100 years ago? Yeah, we might awesome. be looking at a, a very different landscape of world cricket and, and they, they sort of make you think about where cricket could have gone and, and perhaps where it should have gone. Yeah, you make a good point, and yeah, it's 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 a missed opportunity that world cricket failed to jump on at the time, and you know the consequences of that, and and the teams that we see playing on an international basis have been affected by a lot of things that have happened well before our lifetime, which is disappointing. But hopefully, you know, stuff like this does lead into some positive game development. Now let's head to Africa, and specifically Namibia, a place that's pretty close in our emerging cricket hearts. Nick, of course, being there for World Cricket League last year, and they've just announced this week that they will be hosting the Netherlands on a T20 and one day international tour. Uh, We assume that these matches will have T20 international and one day international status given that both teams have status in both formats of the game. The tour will be held in late March and concludes actually on the 1st of April. They play three T20 internationals, then two one day matches and then another final T20 international just to put the icing on the cake. But I have to say, and I'm hoping there's a stream set up for this series and we have friends at TV2 Namibia, Quinton and Vera. Uh, quick shout out to you guys. So hopefully they'll be able to get this off the ground and, and stream this because this has all the makings of what would be quite a competitive series. Both teams looking forward to the rest of 2020. Of course, Namibia coming off probably their best ever year in international cricket. They've got a T20 World Cup to think about. Also, they've got the Cricket World Cup League 2 to think about. And for the Netherlands, they have the, the Super League as well as the T20 World Cup. So they'll be using this as a big springboard to launch into what is a very busy 2020 for both of these sides. Yeah, I think we're going to see some um, some new faces, or I hope so at least, and, and give both sides the chance to um, try out some some of the fringe players and, and see how they go. I'd like especially to see someone like a Lohan Lawrence come back into the side, who's you know he's been uh, very good in the past, but he, he's sort of uh, dropped off the radar a bit recently, and no one's really sure why. And also Ben Shikongo, who and the, he's he's played a few games for Namibia, but he sort of he, he bowls a few overs and he's picked up a few wickets 
but he's I don't know what the story is, but he he never really bowls his full complement, or you know he bowls an over or two here or there. But hopefully he gets a, a consistent run because he looks like a handy bowler to develop for the future. You know, whippy sort of uh, whippy action that can generate a bit of skid off the pitch. Um, and, and obviously on the Netherlands side, a lot of their guys, their county guys, are potentially going to be um, tied up with their counties depending on on how that's going. You know, early season county stuff. But yes, it, it, I think this is uh, an impressive feat of organisation actually considering both teams are pretty strapped for cash so good job from cricket namibia and um yeah i think this will this will be great as you say it should be competitive and hopefully they can stream it yeah i second that i I think it would have been very difficult to organize something like this outside of the calendar and i think both teams could have been satisfied just playing the international cricket that's already in their calendar anyway but to add to this i think is only going to be a good thing for both of these teams and they and they should be rewarded for that uh looking at the netherlands you know and we know how ryan campbell operates you know there's every chance he's going to send a, a large squad over to Namibia and he will probably test just about everyone in that squad with matches. You know, we know what he did in the lead up to the qualifier last year where I think he almost trialed about 20 different players. You know, there were so many different players and never was there a time when a scorecard was identical from one game to the next. And he is a very analytical guy and, and, and a very good coach and he'll be definitely using this series to work out who he wants for that T20 World Cup a little bit later in the year and, and the Super League as well. But for Namibia, yeah, you make a good point about Shikongo and Luan Lovrens, who we haven't seen in a little while, although he has played a couple of T20s here and there. And on that point, you know, I, I would like to see if, if Sean Brenningkamp is in the fold and just how available quite a few of their players are because we know that, you know, availability is something that can stifle the plans of many associate teams. But looking at that Namibia team that played on that recent Cricket World Cup League 2 tour, I do still think they're probably one batsman short from being a, a really good team at that level. I know that Jan Freilink has batted at seven in the past, but I do see him in their best team probably batting eight. But yeah, this is another chance for, for both of these teams to, to iron out what they need to before what will be a big year. And I, and I actually think that these two teams will probably be two of the bigger challenges in that World Cup first round. I think the Netherlands in Hobart are a dangerous prospect for every other team in their group. And for Namibia, I think their work is cut out a little bit more for them. I think there's a bit more competition on their side of the draw but I, I think coming off yeah what was probably their best year ever I think they've got every chance of doing the same thing so hopefully this tour for, for both of these teams does the job in, in terms of fulfilling their preparation and with that T20 World Cup of course just before the Australian summer it did bring an idea into our heads uh, as we recorded tonight Nick and we've seen Tim David and Sandeep Lamachane in the BBL this year of course Singapore and, and Nepali stars respectively we've actually seen Sandeep bowl to Tim David a couple times but it did give me the idea and and seeing a lot of these teams actually struggle with injuries and and players going away on international duty and some of the international players probably not living up to the bill uh, of being overseas players at the Big Bash League this year. It did bring up the idea in my head about potentially having the associate slot for BBL teams once again and I wanted to bring it up with you because I'm sure we can sort of put together a list of players who'd be more than capable of playing at this level and it would probably help the Stars and, and we know that the Stars are a great team already but it would actually give them a little bit more freedom to have 
Sandeep Count as an associate and to actually play two other international players. Now, another argument I had for this was because the Australian system goes from six state teams to eight franchises, the talent is diluted a little bit. And whilst there is some talent outside of, you know, the states turning into to eight teams, I do think there is a real chance for a lot of these associate players to, to actually come in and do a job. And I think the World Cup would be a great window for them to perform. I'll start with your list because I've got a few names here. I was wondering, Nick, looking at perhaps that T20 World Cup qualifier that's just gone by, there are certainly players that could definitely do a job in the BBL. And I was just wondering who you sort of had in mind for this because, yeah, I definitely think that the tournament would benefit by having an associate slot. Well, close to my heart is uh, is Canada, obviously. And, and Nidish Kumar was fantastic in that qualifier despite the fact that Canada... Yeah, very disappointingly <laughs> failed to qualify with a, well, choke ultimately. But uh, yeah, Nidish Kumar, excellent, excellent batsman. And he he's one of those guys that has the capacity to shift gears and, and you can have him come in and, and put out fires if you've lost some early wickets or, or he can come in and smash 80 or 40 balls. And that's a really rare quality in, in batting and um, any team really in the Big Bash would do well to pick him up. In terms of bashing it, you can't really go uh, go past George Munsey who can just absolutely whack them. Um, Gerard Erasmus often gets a shout out on this podcast and with good reason he's one of the highest quality batsmen going around on the associate circuit arguably the best now that Anchi Rath has uh, declared for India uh, so that that'd be uh, three off the top of my head who, who let's let's go down well, let's let's get eight you know one to fill up each slot yeah well Sandeep's automatic so you could probably knock it down to seven uh, and oh I was gonna say David but given he's a local he doesn't need to fill an associate spot anyway yeah so so seven. A guy like Asad Vala is someone that has really got the skill set. Um, again, a, a very good batsman and, and can send down some handy off spinners, which, you know, that's something we like to see in T20 cricket is, is guys who can contribute with, with both disciplines. Ryan Tendiskata, as we saw, well, I mean, just his record speaks for itself, really, but it, we saw in the qualifiers, he's still got it. The way he can time a chase is, is exemplary, and, and that's just a, a really valuable skill to have. Kamal Levrock for Bermuda, they were a bit disappointing in the qualifiers, but he can really whack it. We saw in that game against Scotland where he really smashed them to all corners. He looked like he was going to hit it out of the stadium in the UAE, and you know, they're not small stadiums there, so he can really hit a long ball and, and bowls some handy medium pace as well, so another guy who can, can do a bit of both. That gets me up to six. So I'll, I'll just finish with JJ Smith, who's uh, a perennial favourite for associate cricket. Again, uh, an all-rounder who can deliver with bat or ball. Uh, as we know, Smith can hit. Okay, so, sorry, do you mind just running through your list again just to make sure I don't um, go over the same points? Yeah, so here's my eight. Munzi, Erasmus, Smit, Nidish Kumar, Tendo, Kamal Levrock, Asad Vala, and Sandeep Lamachane, who turns out he wasn't even at the qualifier, so that should show you the depth of quality in associate cricket. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, quite a, a lot of parallels that you have there, and I'll tick Sandeep off because, yeah, he, he's an automatic. I'll second JJ Smith. Uh, I think he's capable with ball and bat, and he's a guy who doesn't need to take a long time to get himself in and can find himself hitting big. He's got a really good inside-out cover drive. He can actually get leg side of the ball and hit over point, but he's also got the sort of swing and the sweep to play square of the wicket. I actually think he's a criminally underrated batsman at, at the level of the game that he's playing at. And he could well, I think I've said it a couple of times, I actually think that he could even be capable of being a, a middle order player for Namibia in the future. Um, so he's an automatic for me. Uh, I think Tendo can go around again 
one more time. So I'm going to give him a spot and uh, Gerard Rasmus for obvious reasons. A couple of similarities as well. Munzi, you make a very good point. I, I think he's too good not to pick up. I think Vala would be a great pick too. So that's what, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then uh, I might try and leave it a little bit open and not go with Leverock or Kuma and leave them as your point of difference. I think they're more than capable, but I'm going to go a little bit different here. And I'm going to give Bernard Skult a shout. I think that he's left arm orthos would come in handy for a BBL franchise. Uh, they also seem to be obsessed with bowlers who spin the ball away from the right hander. He's not a big turn of the ball, but he's got great numbers. So I'd probably go with him. And then look, it's a tough one. And I wanted to say Charles Amini, but I don't quite think that Charles Amini's there yet as a leg spinner. Uh, but a guy that I do want to bring into the fold is Jatinder Singh. I think, you know, the Brisbane Heat would, would love a guy like him because he just wants to swing from ball one. And that just seems to be their only game plan. Uh, the Brisbane Heat, they'll either, you know, swing their backsides oh, off yeah. and make 200 or they'll get bowled out. Well, what they really need is another bash brother, isn't it? What I would like to see, and this is just a, a caveat at the end, is that in a bit of a sort of show-off move against, say, the ECB, would to actually be allowing Irish and Afghan players the same sort of associate status in terms of associate signings, which would mean, okay, Rashid Khan, Case Ahmed probably stay. But the likes of Paul Sterling and Kevin O'Brien could definitely do a job as, in inverted commas, an associate player, despite being a full member player. I think they've sort of been hamstrung a little bit, Ireland, in that a lot of tests have been stripped off them or taken off them for financial reasons. And as a full member, they're kind of struggling. But then they've also lost their associate member perks, if there are any perks, in regards to, to playing county cricket and stuff like that. So I would love to see Paul Sterling and Kevin O'Brien given, I suppose, a special compensation to, to play as associate players. Because I definitely think they could add something to the BBL. I think they'd both be cult heroes in the BBL as well, Sterling in particular. <laughs> we, we do love a big unit. Yeah, exactly. I think I think I think Australia would fall in love with Paul Sterling, and they probably will at the World Cup. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm all for this proposal, if nothing else, to get one over the English. But I mean, there's a couple of points to take out here. The first is that um, the new full members, I mean, Ireland more than Afghanistan, because Afghanistan have uh, been coming along in leaps and bounds. But but Ireland, uh, they're sort of stuck in this this weird in between place. They're yes. I mean, they're technically full members, but they don't really have many of the perks of full members. And as we say, they're you know they're having test matches cancelled left, right, and centre, and you know they're not playing much, and they're getting you know a fraction of the funding as even Zimbabwe. And so it, it's sort of like they're associate plus or, or you know second class full members if you want to look at it that way which is why going back to your point about the irish players not being allowed to play in county cricket anymore i mean from a legal perspective i think it's highly questionable considering yeah, uh, it's a shame, considering yeah. uk work law but even leaving that aside just the the move from the ecb to try and you know lock ireland out of county cricket when it has been so helpful to their development is you know, the big three, uh, India, Australia, England, they've been running cricket for, well, I mean, for a very long time. Uh, and, and before the big three, it was Australia and England kind of running the show. And, and so basically, they've had a stranglehold on the game for a long time. And, and that's brought a, a lot of issues over, over, you know, over the course of the years. But more recently, they, they've taken a lot of the money that the ICC has previously been able to, to distribute to associates. And, and they've, um, you know, put it into their own coffers when pretty clearly they don't really need the extra cash. And, and so so the fact that they're 
I guess, dipping into the associate development budget means, for me at least, they have a moral responsibility to, to do something. You know, this is sort of the bare minimum, really. You know, if they're helping themselves to the money, they can at least, you know, give one slot in, in a team for an associate player to develop them and, and help grow the game that way, considering they're often making it difficult for the ICC to grow the game in, in their sort of development programs. Yeah, and just to bring it back to the T20 World Cup and its potential to perhaps put a few of these players in the shop window, it would be an overwhelming success if a couple of these players at the World Cup do find themselves picked up by BBL teams. I can definitely see the potential of of the likes of Sterling and and other players to, to get a go, even if they do decide to just bring in an extra international player in a roster spot and then if a key international player doesn't quite perform you've got that opportunity to, to step up you know you can look at someone like David Miller who hasn't exactly set the world alight uh, for the Hurricanes but they've also also not had anyone else from an international standpoint come and, and, and take his spot now, I know he made 90 in one of those innings but I definitely think that there would have been an associate player there getting some some experience in a, in a BBL franchise training with some of Australia's better players and a couple of overseas players I definitely think there is knowledge to impart there so hopefully uh, from the T20 World Cup we, we do see an emergence of, of these players signed by BBL teams and yeah it's just a case of hopefully seeing it unfold uh, in October this year Well, I think that's just about all the time that we have for today's podcast. Uh, Thank you for sticking around with me, Nick. I know that, you know, we gave Tim the night off, but given our opening partnership here again, I'm sure that we're more than capable if if Cutler decides he wants to take another podcast off. So uh, thank you for joining me and I'll speak to you on the pod again next week. Always a pleasure, Bess. Looking forward to it. Some news to wrap up today's show. Big news regarding the new T20 World Cup framework for its 2021 tournament. Despite fears of the global qualifier being scrapped, the tournament will remain, expanding to 16 teams but split into two eight-team qualifying tournaments. Just the top two will qualify from each group instead of a total of six at the last qualifier. Cambodia is set to play another national team for the first time, taking on Myanmar this week in two T20s and three 50-over matches. Cambodia are still yet to become a member of the ICC. Uganda's Lagogo Oval is set for a facelift after persistent rain damaged the drainage system there. Uganda is set to host a Challenge League leg there in July. And finally, Minaj Barcelona has been announced as Spain's representative at ECL 20, taking on Levante Lightning in a best-of-three T10 series. The Barcelona side were too strong and claimed the coveted spot after going 2-0 up. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your favorite social media platforms and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, on behalf of myself, Daniel Beswick, as well as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.